Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, we thank you that we can be gathered here this day, that we can worship you together, that we can be caught up by your presence that you have poured out upon us through your Spirit on account of the work of your Son. Make us to know your gracious presence in every part of our lives, that you would work in us and lift us up from where we are to know your presence and to be guided into your presence, to be drawn up to you. And always, O Father, send us forth with your grace to always accomplish that which you have set before us, to accomplish your will in our lives, and to continually direct our eyes upon your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Well, eventually, I hope the power comes back on, but we'll continue our time of worship together. In our collect of the day, we hear this phrase, Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. These words are borrowing from St. Augustine. In his book, The Confessions, I can't remember which chapter it is. I should have looked it up, but I forgot to. He just simply says, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are made for you. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. St. Augustine hits upon something deep here. That we have been created for God. That God made us for Himself. God desires to draw us back to Himself for we were made to know Him. And in many ways, those words, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, is a beautiful theme for all of the Scripture passages we have heard today. There in Exodus, we hear of the Israelites as they're journeying away from Egypt, journeying toward Mount Sinai. They find themselves in a place where there is no water and they grumble and they complain. They want something from God and they blame Moses for bringing them out into the wilderness. Neglecting that their deeper need is in Yahweh alone. And that if Yahweh has brought them out of this horrid place of slavery, He will carry them forward. He will take care of them and protect them. Likewise, in our reading from the epistle to the Romans, we hear of the darkening of man's heart. That though man knew who God was, man turned from God. And because he no longer had God to fulfill that great need in him, because he had rejected the God who would fulfill that need, he turns his eyes because there still remains that need. He turns his eyes to idolatry and all kinds of sinful activities to look upon not the one true God, but upon himself as the one who satisfies, ever neglecting the God who would save him, ever neglecting the God who would act to redeem, to renew, to become the true fulfillment of that heart of darkness by bringing light into that heart. 
And likewise, here with this lesson, this story about the Samaritan woman, we hear of God satisfying a need, of Jesus working to bring about satisfaction deep within her very soul. As He walks with her, as He talks with her, as He speaks to her in this day. And we more and more must realize that we have been made for God. Because God made us to actually need Him. And the fullness of His gift of salvation is to fulfill that need in us. God makes us with a need, and then He fulfills that need. He provides that which is necessary. And He will give us that gift of salvation in its fullness. And so that brings us to the first concept, the first idea coming out of this passage about this woman, the gift of living waters. Something I hadn't thought about was the activity of meeting at the well. One commentator just simply pointed out that there's many stories throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, about meetings occurring at wells. You have Isaac's wife, Rebekah, being found at the well, the servant meeting her there. And again, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. And then later on, many, many, many years later, Moses meets Zipporah at a well after he has fled from Egypt. In those three cases, it is someone seeking a wife and the wife being found, the wife being received. In a similar way, there is the bride to be found at the well. Here in this situation, not the Samaritan woman in and of herself, but her becoming a picture of all who discover Jesus, all who are found by Jesus. That the bride is found at the well, for life is poured out through the water. For at the well, life is being given. True life, living water that will satisfy all of our needs. And that is where their conversation ultimately goes to. As, she, as he asks her for a drink and her being startled by that idea, he tells her, if you knew who this was, if you knew the gift of God and who's asking for water, you would say, give me water. Give me something. And you would get living water. Living water is of course metaphorical. It's not literal water that you can drink that will give you eternal life. It's not the fountain of youth. But it is this gift of the Spirit. This living water gives us new life. And He uses that idea of water there at the well to point this woman to something greater that she doesn't even fully understand that she needs. There is something greater in our need. We need food, and so there is food to eat, yes. But that need for food is a pointer to something greater in us than the need for food. To the greater food, that is, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ that we need to be fed with Christ Himself to be renewed. And likewise, our need for drink points to the greater thirst within. The fact that we are truly thirsty deep down, no matter how much we cover up that thirst no matter how much we pour other things into it, only living water will satisfy that thirst. Our need for companionship always points to the need for a greater companion. We were made to have each and every one of those needs so that those needs would then not only be fulfilled by God here in this realm, but to direct our eyes that there is a greater need that those are pointing to, that those are shadows. Those are foretaste of 
the greatness of what God desires to give to us. There is a greater need within that only living water can fulfill. And that gift of living water is what Jesus offers to this woman. But she is confused, confusing living water with the well water. Asking Him, how are you going to get this water? Where will you get it? You can't get down into the well. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Echoing the words of the Jews, are you greater than our father Abraham? That gift of living waters is challenging her. Challenging her to see Jesus as something greater than even her forefathers. But she still can't see if only we have eyes to see what this living water is. As Jesus continues to speak to her, He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That well water will leave you thirsty. It may satisfy you momentarily. And that's what it's made to do. But there's something deeper within that needs deeper satisfaction. The water I will give will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That gift of living waters springing up within. That welling up is a picture of leaping from one place to another that says water leaps within to renew, to change, to bring into new life. And the woman is intrigued. The woman desires that water. And this all makes me think of over just a few chapters later in John 7 when Jesus says, when He says, at the great feast, that if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Jesus is the one through whom those living waters come. Again, another commentator pointed out that we often read that as saying, out of His heart will flow living waters, that it's out of the heart of the one who believes that those living waters will come. But he argued that there's a sense in which it is Jesus' heart from whom that living water flows into us. That as we are united to Christ, that living water comes down upon us out of the heart of Christ Himself. He is the one who delivers the Spirit to us. It is by His work that the Spirit comes. By Him that living waters are poured upon us. And those living waters will flow forth away from us to others. It's not out of us that that Spirit comes, but it is out of Jesus. And we become the ones through whom Jesus will work. Jesus works through us, but it is only from Him and by Him that the Spirit comes. And that living water will flow forth from Jesus through His people throughout the world. And now the Samaritan woman, hearing of this great gift of this living water, says, I desire that. Give me this water. But still not fully understanding it, so I don't have to come here to draw water anymore. And this moves us to the second point that comes out of this text. The gift of knowing all about us. This is the beautiful thing that happens here. Jesus looks at her and says, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered Him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have... Now is not your husband. Jesus knows everything about this woman from the get-go. 
He knows who she is. He knows her sins. He knows her errors. He knows her mistakes. And here he is sitting by the well asking her to give to him water. I think it's interesting here that it is sexual immorality that this woman is known for by Jesus. That he recognizes her not having a true husband, but yet living with a man. And what's amazing is she just readily admits it. She is willing to own her sin in this moment as Jesus confronts her, as Jesus speaks to her. And it's amazing to me that that is her central sin in this moment because of how the Jews view that kind of sin, as they, how they view adultery, because throughout the Old Testament, adultery is conflated with idolatry. Israel's idolatry is always described often as a type of adultery of the wife abandoning her husband or the husband abandoning the wife of his youth, turning to others, turning away from the gift of God. And here is this woman who is caught up in that kind of sin, who is in a sin that is tantamount to spiritual adultery that is continually used as a picture of adultery, as a picture of idolatry against God. And she confesses it by Jesus leading her through it. By Jesus leading her with her recognition of the need for these living waters. And she has sought satisfaction elsewhere. She has sought satisfaction in husbands and other men. But yet, she still has a deeper need. And she confesses the reality of her sin, of her idolatry, of her adultery. And Jesus already knew all about it and was there with her. And He doesn't leave her. He continues to speak with her. He continues to guide her. He continues to show her this living water being poured out from Himself to her. He offers to her the true living waters through the gift of knowing all about her. And He does the same for us. He knows all about us. He knows the sins within our hearts. Romans 1 gives List of sins that we find ever so amazingly grievous. And yet, Paul also lists all the humdrum sins at the end of the chapter. That everyone has been handed over to sin. Everyone has been given over to a heart of darkness. And it manifests itself in different ways. That heart of darkness within will manifest itself in all kinds of various kinds of sins. It doesn't excuse any sin. It calls out every sin. It points out that every sin is there. And that those sins are a flowing of rebellion and a lack of satisfaction. The people have a need to worship God, but they've rebelled and rejected their God. And so they turn to animals, they turn to other people, they turn to other activities. And they worship in those activities instead of worshiping the one true God. That is the heart of Romans 1, that though they knew God, they suppressed that knowledge. They pushed it down and turned from the Creator to the creation itself. Because we have a need for the Creator. We have a need for worship. But because we are sinners, we cut ourselves off and seek satisfaction for our souls in everything but the one true God. We never look to the one who can truly satisfy. We've utterly rejected the one who can bring us healing, save for Him coming to us. If not for God coming to us, we would refuse always to turn and look at Him as one who can be merciful and forgiving. 
Because we have turned to seek our satisfaction in our needs and other things, that spiritual need of worship. But God knows all about that. He knows what is within. And yet He still directs us. He sends Jesus into our place. He sends Jesus to make the Father's heart known to us and guides us ever nearer to Himself. And as He lays hold of us, as He changes us, as He renews our hearts and minds, He gives to us that gift of worship. Jesus and the Samaritan woman continue their discussion as she recognizes that He is a prophet. And she asks Him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is that place. Where is it that we should worship? And Jesus reveals to her that worship is no longer to be about that physical location of one mountain versus another. That in the Old Testament, yes, the temple was the central place of worship. That was the place that God truly appointed to be where worship would be for salvation is to come through the Jews. And so God centralized His worship there. But nonetheless, the Samaritans had a glimmer of the truth for they were descendants of the Jews. They recognized the one true God And though they had erroneous gods alongside Him, they still recognized the glimmer of truth that He was the one true God above all things. And so they built a temple as well that they might worship Yahweh Himself. But that temple had been destroyed in the 2nd century B.C. And so they were left without a temple while the Jews had built a new temple And so there was animosity, there was hatred, there was frustration there. And so there was a debate between those two mountains. But Jesus points to her that it's not about those mountains. The hour is coming and in fact is now here for the true temple is in your midst. That is why those two mountains no longer matter is because the true temple came down from heaven and dwelt among us. He walked this earth in our very flesh and continues to carry that very flesh. For He is the Son of God made manifest incarnate before our eyes. And thus those two mountains no longer matter. For He is the true temple that is above all other temples. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we follow. And the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I've often thought that the phrase spirit and truth, maybe that should be capitalized. Because it's not necessarily, I don't think, in the context talking about a type of worship, that we're talking about truthful worship and spiritual worship, but it's talking about the way in which God will enable us to worship, that He enables us to worship by giving us the Holy Spirit through the truth of the work of Christ. For God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must have the Holy Spirit and must embrace the truth that is Jesus Christ. Those who worship this spiritual God must also be renewed by that very Spirit of who He is. The Spirit that He pours out through His Son. Who is the truth. Who is the life. Who is the way to the Father. And a woman recognizing something messianic in what He is saying. says, I know Messiah is coming and He will explain everything. And here is the beauty of what suddenly happens. Jesus fully reveals who He is. He says, I am He. I am the Messiah that you speak of. That as He is teaching her about the gift of worship, He reveals that He is the one to be worshipped. He is the one who is the center, who is the truth, who is the one that the Spirit will come through and be given. 
What's beautiful is how John reveals that it's a non-Gentile person. It's a non-Jewish woman who gets to hear Jesus utter those words. The one you speak of is in front of you. I am He. He's not that blunt with Nicodemus. He's not that blunt with many others in the, in the Gospels. But here He is blunt with this woman revealing Himself and giving her that gift of worship. Directing her need for worship to Himself. The one that will receive and fully satisfy that need. And then she leaves. When the disciples return, we discover that Jesus gives her another gift. He's given her that gift of the living waters. He's given her that gift of letting her know that He knows everything. And He's given her that gift of worship in light of that living waters and her turning from herself. Then He gives her the gift of sharing all of these things with others. For what does she then go on and do? She leaves and she goes back to town and says, I've met the Messiah. I found a man who knows everything about me. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one to come? And his disciples are trying to talk to Jesus and give him food and he refuses to eat and tells them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. To make himself known. To reveal his work to the people. To draw the people back to himself. As he's having that discussion, he tells them that the fields are white for harvest. As all these people, all these Samaritans, all these non-Jewish people that the Jews do not like, that the Jews in fact hate and despise because of their half-Jewishness, here comes this group of people to come and meet Jesus, some of whom have already believed the testimony of the woman, the woman who went and shared with them that he knew everything. He knew who I was. And still spoke with me and revealed himself to me. Could he be the true Messiah? And then others come as we hear at the end of the passage in verse 42 that we believe when we first heard, but we no longer depend on what you said because we've heard it for ourselves and we know what you said was true, that he is the Savior. That she shared the Savior with them as a response of her worship, as her response of being freed from her sin is her response of receiving the living waters, of having those living waters wash over her and renew her heart. She then goes forth with that gift of sharing, for that is what Jesus calls us to do. Not of our own power, not of our own abilities, not of our own words, but by that very Spirit that He pours upon us. That Spirit that enables us to worship God is the very Spirit that sends us forth with the power to share. The very truth that we have been brought into worship with. The truth of Jesus as Messiah. The truth is Jesus as the Redeemer. The truth of Jesus is the one who will save our souls from the damnation and hell that we deserve in ourselves. That is the Jesus that we go out to share. That is the Jesus that has been revealed to us by the Spirit. And this Samaritan woman goes and shares Jesus in a way that the disciples hadn't done in a way that Nicodemus doesn't do. She just goes out and shares Him and tells others the simplicity of their recognition of who He is. He knew everything about me and He is the one who will fulfill all the wrong in me. He will undo the wrong things I have pursued and forgive them and remove them from His sight even though He knows it all. And He gives me His Spirit and He gives me Himself as the truth. The gift of living waters ultimately leads to the gift of sharing. That it's not a job, it's not a deed, it's not a hardship that God has given to us. 
but it flows out of those living waters that are within us, those living waters that have renewed our heart and sent us forth. For we are sent forth to do that which God has given us to do as we pray every week. And that is where the Spirit empowers us. That is where the truth that we have partaken of, that we have eaten of in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that is where that truth comes into us and empowers us and strengthens us and builds us up to then go forth into the midst of our families, into the midst of our friends, into the midst of our work environments, and to live a life of faithfulness before the world. And in that life of faithfulness, we will be revealing Jesus by our words, by our actions, by our deeds. As we conform ourselves more and more and admit that we are broken people that God knows everything about and yet God receives us nonetheless. That likewise, regardless of the sins any have committed, they can be received by those living waters. They can be cleansed by those living waters and sent forth in worship and in sharing. And that is what the Lord is doing in our lives this day. Living water poured upon us to satisfy that deep need, that deep need of knowing Him, that deep need to worship. And His gift of salvation is the overarching gift that all of that is part of, that fulfills that deep inward yearning for Him. And so He gives us that gift this day in His Word, in His sacrament, in our prayers, in our fellowship. He gives us that gift of Himself for salvation. May we always receive it. May we always be changed by it. May we always be renewed and sent forth by our Father with His Spirit and with the truth in all that we do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.